Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Hey, wait a minute. What's the name of your church? Real life Christian church. Real life. Get real with another edition of Think About It. Real life messages from Pastor Dennis Rasper from Real Life Christian Church. And now, let's listen to the message from Pastor Rasper. Today, the third principle that drives me is this. Do it, and by it I mean that which you know to be right, whether you feel like doing it or not. And a lot of you know this, I've said this before, if you didn't sleep really well, or even if you did, as it gets brighter in the morning, you, you, that, that, that bed just feels so good, man, I'll tell you. And you don't feel like getting up. But you see, here's what I know. I know that my mind is freshest in the morning. And I know that I'm going to see things in the Word of God that I won't see other times of day because my mind is the sharpest. I know that people and thoughts are going to come to my mind, people and things I need to pray for that won't come any other time of the day. And, and that bed feels so good, but whether you feel like it or not, that's what gets me out of bed, to get my face in that Word of God. Here's something else you don't like to do. You don't feel like doing it. You don't feel like working out. Who, who feels like working out? Who feels like exercising, doing sit-ups, doing push-ups, doing whatever you do to exercise, doing the weight things, riding the treadmill, going for walks at a good brisk pace? You don't feel like that. But God tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, your body is not your own. Your body is a gift from him, and he wants us to take care of that body, and it's something you do whether you feel like it or not. And again, that principle has driven my life. Do it whether you feel like it or not. People tell me, um, they say my life is forced. They say, um, I force myself to do what I do, and I want to say to them, tell me something new. Look at Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. This is Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, here's the scene. Jesus and his disciples are walking from Galilee in the north of the land of Israel to Jerusalem in the south. They're on the seacoast by the Mediterranean Sea, and Jesus picked this special moment to ask his disciples this very special question. In verse 27 of Mark chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples are on the way to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? So who do people say that I am? And they said, okay, Lord... If you want to know all the scuttlebutt, if you want to know what people are saying about you, well, we'll tell you. You're something they can't figure out. They say you're somebody back from the dead, like John the Baptist or Elijah the prophet or something like that. They say you speak with such authority. You do signs and wonders, and people really don't know what to make of you. And now Jesus said, okay, you told me what everyone else is saying, and now the big question. This was huge. Jesus wanted to know what they thought of him, and so he says in verse 29 of Mark chapter 8, he makes it personal. He says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And on that road, with the Mediterranean Sea to their left and some mountains to the right, they stop. And this was probably the most critical moment of Jesus' ministry to that point. Because the rabbis taught the Jewish people that um, their Messiah would come from heaven to earth like Elijah went back into heaven on a white horse and a chariot of fire. Their Messiah would come back with armies and horses and chariots of fire, and their Messiah would destroy all evil. I mean, that's the picture of the Messiah that people had. And you've got to consider Jesus Christ was born in a stable. He was raised in Nazareth. 
He stayed with his mom and dad most of his life until he was 30 years old. And he just didn't fit the Jewish concept of the Messiah. He didn't fit the picture. And then along comes John the Baptist. And John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, and he said, there he is. He said, that's the Lamb of God. That's the Messiah. That's the guy who's going to take away the sins of the world. And from that point on, Jesus gathered followers and, 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 and taught with such authority. He knew the scripture better than any of the rabbis. As a matter of fact, when Jesus finished his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law, not as their rabbis. He spoke to demons and they obeyed. He healed blind's eyes. And finally, the question came down to the disciples. So the other people think, I'm kind of a mystery, kind of an enigma. The question finally came to them, who do you say that I am? I think there had to be some silence on that road. They stopped. They had never dealt with that question before. Who do you say that I am? Is he really the Messiah? Then Peter spoke for the group. And this is one of Peter Better's moments, Peter's better moments. And he said, he said in verse 29, Peter answered, you are the Christ, meaning the Messiah. And all the other disciples probably said amen to that. And I tell you, I believe that meant everything to Jesus. Because at this point, he knew that they knew that this guy from Nazareth, literally born in a barn, was the long-promised Savior. Now that they made this confession, now Jesus can begin to open up. Now Jesus can begin to tell them what's gonna, what, what, what their Messiah is going to do. Now you've got to remember the Jewish picture of the Messiah. He's coming back in a chariot on a white horse. He's going to come back with, with fire and clouds of glory and all that stuff. It says in verse 31, Mark chapter 8, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, their Messiah, must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and after three days rise again, and he spoke plainly about all this. And you can see those disciples thinking to myself, themselves, hey man, this is not what messiahs do. And, and Jesus said all this, and Peter says to him, now, now listen, Jesus, I want to clue you in. Messiahs don't do that. Messiahs called on fire from heaven. They free the Jews. They establish a world of peace and security. And in Mark 8, 32, it says this. It says, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside. And listen, began to rebuke him. He began to rebuke the Son of God. I mean, I think that's pretty heady. So he began to rebuke the Son of God. He said, he said, Messiahs don't die like that. And then here's the key in verse 33. Now, you got to understand something. Peter would have given his very life for Jesus. Any of those disciples would. And they just didn't think he should die like this. And these guys were ready to raise an army to protect him from dying like this. And Jesus said this. This is, this is so neat. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me. Now look what he called him. He, get me, he said, get behind me, Satan. He saw Satan in this whole endeavor to keep him from going to the cross because Satan didn't want Jesus to go to the cross because Satan knew Jesus goes to the cross. He's dead, man. He's done. He's a defeated enemy. And so he said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You're thinking like men. You're not thinking like God. Now here's the deal. We have to know this. Jesus was both true God and true man. Anybody ask you, who is Jesus Christ? There's only one answer. He is true God and true man in the same person at the same time. 
It's the only answer. Jesus Christ, the only right answer. Jesus Christ is true God and true man in the same person at the same time. And being true man, he had feelings and emotions. And do you think for a minute, Jesus Christ, verse 31, he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and die ultimately. Do you think he wanted to do that? Be rejected, suffer, be killed. Now, I'm not thinking, I, I, I'm not saying he didn't want to do that. Of course he did. That was the Father's mission. That was the commission the Father gave him. He wanted to be obedient to his Father. I mean, he had this, this deep personal love for us, you and me as believers, his bride. But humanly speaking, he didn't want to go through all that stuff. I mean, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible says he was in anguish. And sure, he was going to bear the sins of all people in his body. That was anguish. He was going to be separated from his father. That was anguish. He's going to have to go through all this physical pain, all that anguish. He didn't feel like doing this. But here's the big deal. He did what he had to do, and he went through it. He walked into it. And that's the point of this whole message, that sometimes when you don't feel like it, you do what you have to do. And that's... In my own personal life, that's been a driving force. So how do you do what you have to do when you don't feel like doing it? And we have to look at the major principle here, and that is you don't act on what you feel. You act on what you know. You don't act on your feelings because feelings will lead you to do wrong and sometimes dumb things. You feel like you do because of, well, maybe because of what you ate. You feel like you do because of things going on in your life. Maybe you tried to um, really be a friend to people at work and, and, and really, really, really help those people at work. And they're all being very picky and you couldn't please anybody. And so you don't feel too good about that. Or maybe your dad's in the hospital and you're, the, 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 the doctor says he, he may die. He could die. He's only 62 years old. He's too young to die. See, that causes feelings. Humanly speaking, Jesus wasn't particularly fond of all the suffering before the cross and the anguish of the cross itself. But here's what he knew. Here's what he knew. He knew Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And see, he knew that and he knew that was about him. And he acted not so much on what he felt, not at all on what he felt, but he acted on what he knew. And that's why he was able to see Satan and Peter's attempt to protect him from, all the, from the cross and all that went with the cross. So he acted not on what he felt, he acted on what he knew and he did what he had to do, see. You deal, folks, with what you know, not what you feel. People say, I don't feel forgiven. And I can understand that because 1 Corinthians 8.18 says that sexual sin in particular stains your soul so deeply, sometimes you can't wash away that stain. And I have my own pet sins, and I don't let go of them real easy. And folks, I got to tell you, I don't always feel forgiven, but listen to one passage from Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, this is verse 12. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Listen to that, as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our transgressions that far. Not as far as the north is from the south, because you can travel north, hit the north pole, and then start going south. You can travel south, hit the south pole, and then start going north. But when you go east or west, you just keep going, 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 going. And that's a special way the Holy Spirit has to tell us if you've confessed your sins in your heart, 
If you've asked for the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and have consciously fought that sin, then you deal what you know. You are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. And that simply means, man, there is no limit to it, that there is no limit to God's forgiveness. You're forgiven no matter how you feel. See, feelings lie, folks. Don't act on your feelings. Some say, I don't feel like God answers my prayers. And I think that's just about every one of us. And I think of Job in 36 chapters of Job, he cried out. He said, God, where are you? Tell me why all this is happening to me. And God didn't answer him. At least he felt God didn't answer him. Heaven was like brass. And then in verse 38, chapter 38, after 37 chapters, finally in chapter 38, God chides Job. Yeah, he does. But he answers him and he says, Job, you've been going through this whole deal. Now, I heard every word you said. I've been with you the whole time. I've been moving this whole deal the direction I want it to go. And see, you can walk away from any prayer of faith, any prayer of faith, and you can know that God has it. He hears it. He's doing something. God not only hears, but he answers every prayer of faith, man. You can go to the bank on that. See, you don't deal with what you feel. Go to this word of God. I mean, deal with what you know, what the word of God says. See, people feel that they're in this whole deal alone. Nothing ever works. Well, God's word teaches this, man. God's word teaches that whatever he leads you into, he empowers you to accomplish. And just because something isn't going the way you think it should, and just because you don't feel successful, you don't give up. I wanted to throw in the towel a whole bunch of times, and I love this passage, man. I keep coming back to the second, second Timothy 1, 7. I mean, this is truth. I feel like things aren't going the way I want them to go. I feel very unsuccessful. And verse 7 of 2 Timothy says, forget. and I feel like, I just want to say, forget it. In verse 7 of 2 Timothy 1 says this, for God did not give us a spirit, look at this, of timidity. But what did he give us? A spirit of power? Man, I hope you take this home. God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of, of love, and that's agape. That, that, that's a selfless love. That means you can love difficult people and, and a spirit of self-discipline. You know that husbands and wives sometimes irritate each other. Tell me something else I don't know, huh? And I'll tell you, I don't always feel like being nice to my wife. She doesn't feel like being nice to me. But here's what I know. I'm not going to act on like, I'm like, well, listen, I'm no dummy. I'm not going to act on my feelings. But um, <laughs> in 1 Peter chapter, see, that, that's how I feel. I don't always feel like being nice. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, listen to this. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Now, you got to go to the original Greek here. It doesn't say be considerate in the original Greek. It says live with her according to gnosis, which is knowledge or understanding. So let me read it that way. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives according to understanding and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs of the grace of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I'm saying I don't always feel like I want to do what she wants me to do at the moment, but God tells me through Peter, I can pray for a good marriage. And if I don't dwell with her according to understanding, which means I seek to understand her so I know how she feels, I know what her needs are, and then meet those needs. If I'm not willing to do that, then... Forget the prayers for a good marriage. Serious about that, man. If you're not willing to understand her and or him, and you're praying for a great marriage, what good are all the prayers? See, sometimes you don't feel 
like understanding him or her. But you don't act on what you feel, you act on what you know. Think about people who say, you'll always know where I stand. I'll tell it to you like it is. What you see is what you get. And people boast about that. You'll always know where I stand. I'll always give you a straight shot, man. You'll always know how I feel. I'm not going to be phony about anything, you know. I, I'm real, and they're almost boasting about it. I want to talk to people like that and say, why are you so proud, even boastful, about your sin? That's sinful. Ephesians 4.26 says this, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only that which builds up or edifies and ministers grace. See, you feel like you like to say it. Oh, I'm going to be real. You always know where I stand. But you don't act on your feelings. You act on the truth. You act on Ephesians 4.26. You edify people. You build people up with your words. You minister grace. See, you act on what you know. And that has been a driving principle of my life. You act on what you know, not what you feel. And you do it whether you feel like it or not. And folks, please hear me. Now, this has worked for me, and it works more and more and more and more as I grow in my faith in Jesus Christ. You know, there's an old proverb, you might say, that says, know thyself, know thyself. I, I, I know when I'm rushed. I know when I'm irritable. I know when I have kind of a bad attitude. And I need to be around people, and I can't avoid that. I know myself. And there's a principle I've always followed. I act contrary to what I want to do. See, if you know yourself, you know you're in a mood like that, and you know this is what you feel like doing, and you have to go totally the other way. And if there's any Bible passage that supports this, it's in Romans 7.25, where Paul says, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And so I have to know myself. And I know sometimes in my crummy attitude in my bad mood, consumed with something else and something's getting in my way, I, I know, man, if, if I go out among people, I'm, I'm, I'm going to create a problem. And I have taught myself that what I want to say at a time like that, I just say the exact opposite. And it usually works. <laughs> I don't want to be there, and I know my feelings, I know myself, and I go anyway. I don't want to act friendly, but I act friendly. I know myself well enough to know I'm in a raunchy mood. My attitude stinks. There's no way I can avoid being with people. And that's where my mind has to rule over my emotions. You act on what you know, not what you feel. Sometimes your mind has to rule over your heart, and you act the direct opposite of what you feel. And so we do it whether we feel like it or not, man. That's been, like I said, that's been a principle of my life. Let's talk about responsibility and commitment for a minute. I look at... Um, Back to Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And then he brought it down home. He made this personal. He says, what about you? In verse 29, he asked, who do you say that I am? And that's a question everybody has to deal with. Folks, everybody has to deal with the Jesus question. Who do you say that I am? Salvation doesn't come because you have Christian people all around you. 
because you have Christian family or because you hang out with a nice group of Christian people. It does not come because of that. Salvation is a very personal thing. It's a personal responsibility, and we're talking about responsibility. Just like in Jesus' days, most people have an opinion about who he is. I mean, who would Jesus Christ use? Is he just another prophet like Muhammad? Is he the prophet of Christianity? Is he, is he just a great man with a great capacity to love and oh, how you wish you could be like Jesus? Or is he true God and true man in the same person at the same time? And he is your very life. He is your only hope. You, 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 you trust in him unflinchingly and only. Without him, you cannot live. And folks, he has to be that. He has to be that. But I mean, what I'm saying is that um, responsibility is a very heavy thing. And once in a while, folks, it's, it's okay to forget responsibility. Once in a while, just, just once in a while. You know, I could have two or three messages on, on what the Bible says about responsibility. There's the responsibility we go after, and there's the responsibility that, that God gives to us. He just gives it to us. And that's what this word of God in Mark chapter 8 is all about. The Father gave Jesus a bride a church, people who would believe in him. And with the Father giving Jesus that bride came the responsibility of saving them and everything that went with saving them. With, with that bride came the cross and all that went with the cross. And Jesus did it whether he felt like it or not. That's the principle. You do it anyway. I mean, God puts six suffering, messy people in your life for whatever reason only he knows. But, you know, he puts them in there for a reason. And, and we do what we have to do. Because it's responsibility, and it's a God-given responsibility. Anybody in leadership, there are certain things you have to do yourself that nobody else can do. You can't give it away. God put me in that position, and there's certain things I would rather not do, but they're responsibilities, and I can't give that responsibility to anybody else. And I'll tell you one thing that he gave me to do is uh, he, he, I have to confront issues. And I'm a typical phlegmatic personality, and I hate to confront issues. Phlegmatic personalities like harmony. They like peace. And there are times when I have to confront, and I can't give that away. A lot of times, well, sometimes I, have, I encounter people who are living together, and it's uncomfortable, but I need to tell those people this isn't God's best for you. God has a better plan. This is a sin. That's not something you can give away. Folks, I know the responsibility God's given me. You have to apply this principle of God's word about your personal responsibility and um, doing what you don't really want to do because God's given you that responsibility. And one of those responsibilities may be just paying your bills. And one of those responsibilities may be just finding a job, if you can find a job in this market, in this culture, if you can find the job. That's not the job you've always done, but something that's going to pay a whole lot less, but at least it's going to help you pay your bills. It's just a sense of responsibility. God's given that to you. Nobody else can do it for you. And that is the whole thing about commitment. I look at verse 31. Verse 31 of Mark chapter 8. And Jesus says, or the word of God says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests and teachers of the law, and so on and so forth, and be killed and so on. I mean, remember, Jesus is the God-man. His human nature despised that. And how do I know his human nature despised that? Because I go to Hebrews chapter 12 and I look at verse 2 and Hebrews 12, 2 tells me this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame. He endured the cross, scorning the shame. That was commitment, see? Folks, commitment to the responsibility you have. Jesus wasn't swayed from it. 
He did what the Father put on his plate, and he did what God told him to do, even though, even though he despised it because of his commitment to that responsibility, because he wanted to do what his Father gave him, and, he, and his deep love for us. Love demanded that. And you know, I, I wish that husbands and wives would know and believe when you don't feel that love for each other, commitment to that marriage is still there. See, why do you do what you do when you don't feel like doing it anymore? Because you gave your word, you're committed, and Jesus says in Matthew 5, 37, he says, let your yes be yes. James 5 tells us that keeping your word, following through is attractive to unsaved people. Folks, this series is about the main principles that have driven my life, the stuff I found in my life that works, and these are all biblical principles. And the first is obey God at all costs. The second is look inside you to see why you do things and evaluate yourself. Do you have a first love beside Jesus Christ? And the third is this, do it whether you feel like it or not. Act on what you know, not on what you feel. Feelings lie. God's word never lies. And we act because God's given us responsibility. We act because we've made commitments. People, let me say that. And when you act out of responsibility because of commitments you made, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He went to the cross because of the commitment he made, because of the responsibility of us. And then I'll tell you, when you do that, we are growing into Christ-likeness. And that pleases the heart of God so much. And that's what life is all about. Think About It is sponsored by Real Life Christian Church. Real Life Christian Church meets in Endeavor Middle School, 22505 26 Mile Road, just west of North Avenue in Ray, Michigan. Sunday service starts at 10 a.m. Visit us on the web at rlcc.us. Never miss a single message from Pastor Rasper. Just go to faithtalk1500.com and download the Real Life Podcast. And until next week, may God's Word do a work in you. Real Life Christian Church. Get real.